David and Sharon and Alex's uh, testimony. Uh, we put it online uh, last year, and I remember uh, watching it online, but it's a different dynamic when we see it all together as a church. And here, uh, with a common heart of God's work of grace and in their lives, and, and to know that they're still walking in the Lord, they're growing in the faith, and, you know, and they look... They're like immutable. They haven't changed at all in a whole year. Can't say that about some of us, but for them, God has given them double grace. Where, and uh, so it's great. And thank you, Dan. You know, so good. I don't think I need to preach. You know, I think that's the message that we want to convey to you the next few weeks. And lead with the gospel. Uh, put the gospel at the forefront, and have all of us just trust in the gospel, and let the Lord bear fruit in our lives, and let the Lord bear fruit in our church. This is not our work. This is not our responsibility or our job. But it really is uh, God's work, and He will do it. Our, our, our sole privilege is just to uh, gaze upon Christ and trust in Him, knowing that He will lead us, He will conquer for us, and He will lead us to victory. Well, yesterday, uh, many of you were at Jill and Rosie's wedding. Um, Second hottest wedding I've ever been to in my life. <laughs> Maybe second or third hottest wedding I've been to in my life. But God, was, God, God gave you grace. And uh, I just don't know why I don't. I forget to bring a napkin up there. I'm just, every time, I go, James, what are you doing? So uh, next wedding, I'll, I'll try to remember. And um, talking to a guy, and he's actually a seminarian at Master's Seminary. He's finishing up his first year, and he's telling me he finished up two semesters of Hebrew. And like, I had a real mini flashback. It was like a, a mini, you know, nightmare of like what it was like to be in Hebrew class. And he asked me if I still read the Old Testament in Hebrew. <laughs> and I said, I've never read the Old Testament <laughs> in Hebrew. What are you talking about? Like, I don't remember. Forget the alphabet. What's the first letter? A uh, Hebrew. So, you know, I, I had strengths as a seminarian. Very few, a lot of weaknesses. And languages, it's not one of them. We're fellowshipping this week. And, uh, you know, one of the first languages, quote-unquote, I learned in high school was Spanish. And, uh, you know, I took Spanish 1 and Spanish 2. And so that's hardwired into my brain as my foreign language. So wherever I go, it doesn't matter if it's Czech Republic or I go to Russia or Kazakhstan, when I speak foreign language, Spanish comes out. So I say gracias in Czech Republic. I say no mas in Russia. You know, I say, that's my Spanish right there. So I got to stop. But the language is not one of my strong points. Um... But one of my classes that I, I really enjoyed was uh, historical uh, church history. Uh, church history, um, they have two classes, uh, medieval and modern church history. It was one of the classes I, I really enjoyed. Um, church, history, church history for Christians is so important. We can learn so much from the past, um, learn, learn so much from church events, uh, past church uh, leaders, godly men and women whom God used uh, for His own purposes. 
Um, we can learn a lot about false teachings and heresies, how there's nothing new under the sun. All the modern heresies that we see abound in the world today is the rehashing of that first heresy that was preached at the Garden of Eden by the serpent. And it's just uh, repackaging of the same old lie over and over again. So by studying church history, we can see how they were formed and how to refute, correct, and confront uh, false teaching and false teachers. For me, I resonate with church history because I think I'm a heart guy. So when I read, read like or study didactic teachings, sermonic, informational teachings, my mind is engaged, but my heart is not so engaged. But church history is different. Uh, there is uh, there is heat, there is passion, there is uh, personalities. It, it converges together, and it unfolds into a to, in real life events with real life people, and a and drama unfolds uh, with God's word hanging in the balance, and it's so stirring to. Um, Learn this way via church history. I recently read uh, Edwards' um, short little booklet, A Faithful Narrative of the Surprising Work of God in Northampton, Massachusetts. And there was a gospel work being done in that area by the preaching of Jonathan Edwards. It was these people steeped in religion, steeped in... um, high church, church tradition, steeped in all the religious works of um, you know, puritanical, you know, early America. And yet, their righteousness had kept them from the gospel. Their righteousness and their legalism blinded them from the beauty of the cross. And so their strength was indeed their weakness. When Edwards began to preach the gospel... God did a tremendous work in that righteous people were being saved. It wasn't the sinners, it wasn't the drunkards or people of the world. It was elders and deacons and upstanding, the moral citizens of the city. They were being shaken to the core by the gospel of Christ. And they were responding in such um, un- you know, in a way that was not common for that Presbyterian world of the 18th century. They were responding with tears, with uh, loud cries. They would roll around on the ground. They would shake and tremble. They would pray for hours. This is, a presby- this is not a charismatic Pentecostal church. This is a Presbyterian church where Edwards would preach manuscript for an hour without any change in his tone of his voice. He would fix his eye on one point at the back of the room and he would read his sermon and the response was one of 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 just religious affections, one of uh, prayers that were spontaneous, uh, instantaneous. He received so much criticism from the church at large, that it was just shallow emotionalism. It was largely uh, man-induced manipulation. That he wrote this booklet uh, 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 describing what was happening. 
that it really was the gospel that was working. And it's uh, an amazing account. You guys should read it. It's free online, so doubly so you should read it. There's an account of this young girl who was doubting the condition of her soul, and she thought she was distant from Christ, and so broken over her sin that she went into her closet, and she began to pray and pray and pray, and the gospel was revealed to her. She came out and talked to her mom, and they wept together. Her brother came, and they shared the gospel and, 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 and testified to him, and he got converted, and her conversion was used by God to convict many souls. And if somebody else wrote this, I would like doubt the veracity of this account. But it's Jonathan Edwards, probably the greatest theological mind that this country has ever produced. And he said she was four years old. A four-year-old girl. His next account is a woman who was 90 years old. And now she was convicted by the Holy Spirit and was moved of God to repent of her all righteousness and trust in Christ to the glory of God before many. So through church history, we see um, not just in a sermonic form, but through real-life people, real-life events, uh, it teaches us that if we preach the gospel, if we, it's not the packaging, it's not the style of the worship service or music, it's not all this decorative things that are important, but if we put the gospel at the center and preach the gospel, especially to righteous people, people who think 86% of Americans think they're going to heaven, so preach these 86% who think they're righteous inside of God, God will do a tremendous work. That's why I love church history. Um, so to that end, uh, we want to uh, go to the first uh, history book on the Christian church. Uh, the first history book. And uh, those of you who are good students of the Bible are already turning the Bible already. Or you guys saw it in the bulletin, so you guys are cheating. Um, <laughs> do you guys know that the first book, history book is the book of Acts? Right, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the book of Acts. Written by the good doctor, Dr. Luke. He, he wrote the Gospel of Luke uh, after careful research to document uh, the ministry of Jesus Christ, his birth, life, ministry, teaching, death, and resurrection. The book of Acts is a historical narrative describing the birth of the church. Christ was resurrected, and 40 days later, the church of Jesus Christ was birthed after Christ ascended in Acts 1. Acts 2, Peter stands up during the Feast of Pentecost. And 40 days ago, he was a coward. He was, you know, was a wimp. Right? He had no backbone. Before a slave girl, he denied slave girls. And just, just a rabble, he uh, denied the Lord three times. And he was seen outside of the courtyard weeping bitterly. Forty days later, Peter is a changed man. His heart is transformed by the risen Christ. Without any fear in his heart, before the religious leaders of Israel, the very ones who murdered Jesus, the very ones who killed God's only Son, he stands up and proclaims the gospel of Christ 
But in a manner that is uh, very direct, he calls them out and says, You crucified him. You murdered him. He is the, the, the son of David and the line of David, the promised Messiah, our king, and you are the ones who crucified him. And as he preached, there was uh, the birth of the church. And we see how the word, just like the testimonies we heard, it's the gospel that give, gave birth to these, to these three souls who are dead and, and now they're alive. Likewise, the gospel is preached and life was given out. Over 3,000 souls were saved that day. And it was just the beginning. Um, you know, it's like the wonder years. It's like the glory days. It was just amazing what the things that were happening, starting with Acts chapter 2. God was doing wonderful things in and through this New Testament church. Without fear, they're proclaiming the gospel. And people were streaming. Uh, they're running to Jesus. They're getting saved left and right. Their baptism is occurring every single day. A spirit of joy and wonder and fear filled the congregation of believers in the city of Jerusalem. There was repentance, humility, a heart of hearts of faith, a generous spirit. And God was using them to do, do, do wonderful miracles. Um, and Acts 4 recounts that. Where it's a beggar, paralyzed, begging for silver or gold. And Apostle Peter says, silver or gold I don't have, what I have I'll give to you in the name of Christ. Rise up and walk. And this man who was paralyzed rises and walks and he's leaping and rejoicing with joy, proclaiming that Jesus healed him. And uh, the Sanhedrin, they're so angry, they arrest the apostles. They threaten them to never preach in Jesus' name. In Acts 5.41, the apostles respond, We must obey God rather than men. We don't care what you do to us. We're not intimidated. We're not afraid of your threats. If you hurt us, we rejoice. If you kill us, to be apart from the body is to be present with Christ. And so with boldness, they, they said, we must obey God rather than men. Uh, Gamaliel, who was the high priest that year, he is a pragmatist. He's not speaking God's truth. He says, uh, if this is of man, it will go away. If this is of God, we can't stop it. Let these men be. And so they uh, lashed them 39 times and let them go. And in Acts 5, we, we see the apostles rejoicing, leaving the courtyard of the temple with joy in their hearts because they, they saw it as a privilege to be considered worthy to suffer for Christ. That's the first testimony of these um, faithful Christians who suffered. They saw that the Lord suffer, and when they shared in His suffering, their response was um, joy before him, endured the cross like Christ. They endured it with joy. They're, they're, they're lashing, and they went away with great joy in their hearts. Now, you would think um, that's how it would continue. But in Acts chapter 6, um, funny thing happens in the church. 
in the city of Jerusalem. And uh, what happens? People happen, right? People happen in the church. The church would be so great if it wasn't for people. And so God is doing all these great things. And like a conflict rises in the midst, right? A major issue rises up, threatening to halt the advance of the gospel. It's threatening the, the unity of the body, the growth of the church. The problem was so severe that the apostles stop everything and they call a church-wide meeting, right? Similar to what we did last Sunday, where after communion of a church-wide gathering where we do our family business. I gotta believe ours was longer than theirs last week. I gotta believe ours was a little bit too long, but so we see a precedent for these church-wide members gathering. They, they called all the disciples, and disciples are Christians. Christians are people the way. People the way are believers. All synonymous. They call a church-wide meeting to deal with this issue because it was such a threat to the gospel and to the gospel ministry. So let's go to Acts chapter 6 and look at this problem. <clears throat> the, the problem centers around a complaint by the Hellenists against the Hebrews. Now, I'm, you guys know, you guys took, um, you guys went to school, right? <laughs> right? I actually had to look it up. I knew it, but I didn't want to like, you know, mess up in public. But Hellenists, from what I found out through Google, is uh, <laughs> are people that have adopted the culture and language of, of Greeks. They were Jews who were Hellenized. So, my first memory is when I was in eighth grade taking geometry with Mrs. Bugsby, she would say, James, there are two kinds of Asians. They're the good Asians and they're the Americanized Asians. <laughs> the good Asians are those that wear colorful clothing, right? And they have like, you know, straight haircuts and they come with backpacks that are like, have foreign writing on them. But they're good because they're respectful, they come early and leave late, they take notes, they get good grades, they don't have attitude. But the Americanized Asians are the ones that, you know, walk with a swagger, they have an attitude, they think they know it all and they're rude and they don't do well in class. And I don't know why, but I said, Mrs. Bugsby, what am I? And she said, Jesus, you're an Americanized Asian! You're the foremost Americanized Asian in my class. What can I say? Yeah. So, right, so, right, so he's a Chinese, he's first generation, second generation, Korean, Korean, Korean American. And so there were these Hebraic Jews who stayed in Jerusalem. And they spoke Aramaic, they studied the law, and their culture, their commitment, their language was... Uh, was Hebraic. Now there were the Jews who had dispersed uh, for various reasons the regions all over uh, ancient uh, Middle East. And just like in Acts, they came back for that feast, but because they were second or third generation, they didn't speak Aramaic, they spoke Greek. And their, their dress and their manners and their where they spoke and what they valued was not the Hebraic culture or religion. It was more 
Greek culture, Greek music, Greek dance steps, they enjoyed that theater more than Jewish things. And so in the church, when the gospel was preached, the Jews first in Acts 2, these two groups came into the church, Hebraic Jews and um, Hellenistic Jews. And I think there was quite a bit of uh, conflict and maybe division in their midst. And the flashpoint was in the distribution of food for widows. Um, the early church, they knew James 127, the religion that God our Father finds faultless to care after orphans and widows in their distress. There was quite a number of widows who needed food. They needed daily sustenance. So the church, the first thing that they did was to distribute every day food to widows who were in need. Um, but the Hellenistic Jews, they saw a discrepancy, they saw a difference. And we're not exactly sure what happened, but the Hellenistic widows were being overlooked while the Hebraic widows were given preference. So maybe the Hebraic Jews were giving double portion, or the Hebraic widows were first in line, and by the time the, the Greek Hellenistic Jews came to get the food, it was all, they, they run out, but a complaint arose, and there was tension, division, and conflict, and it boiled over into an overt complaint. Now, in the church, there are two kinds of problems. Right? There are two kinds of problems. Um, in Acts 5, when Ananias and Sapphira lies to the Holy Spirit, and they fall dead in the church, that's a bad problem. Right? That's not a good problem at all. That's a bad problem. In Acts 7, when Saul is so angry, he murders one of your deacons, and he's after the whole church. I mean, it could be both, but that's not, if you were there, you, and if your name is Stephen, that's not a, that's a bad problem. It's not a good problem. But here in Acts 6, it's a good problem. Right? It's a good problem. Why? Because it's the result of growth. Right? It's the result of the gospel advancing, of souls, of people coming in to the church. Look at, the, look at verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, the problem arose because there were so many people and so many widows that this problem arose. So uh, I think we need to understand when God works, problems follow. And, and we need to see them as good problems. And Cornerstone is experiencing that. I mean, it's a good problem that you guys feel a little tight. Uh, you used to have a whole row to yourselves. You guys could like lay down during fellowship time. Now you can't. Right? It used to be that if you had a child, you'd have 10 singles lining up to hold your baby. Now if you have a child, they're running away from you. Right? They, they, you know they see you, but they go around the parking lot to get snacks. Right? I mean, you go to Pebble's room and it's like, it's like prison, right? It's like um, wild, wild west over there. Those are problems, but they're good problems. They're problems due to growth. And not just like numbers, like fixated numbers, but their numbers means like gospel is preached, hearts are being transformed, lives are being saved, 
And people are added to God's kingdom. So we have to see it as a good problem. And uh, this problem occurred in the most unexpected time and place. I mean, the, the, very, the verse before is uh, the apostle suffering for the cross. And we, I, I, didn't, I wouldn't expect this to happen. Right? So problems come up in unexpected places, in random times. And note that it's a practical issue. The conflict, the division, the flashpoint is not over theology. It's not about the gospel. It's not, there's no heresy or it's not Judaizers who are trying to subvert the gospel by adding to the law, adding to the gospel or taking away from the gospel. There is no sin issue or moral issue. No apostle is getting disqualified from the ministry. It's about feeding widows. Now, if I'm Luke, I, mean, I don't understand. I, I, when I, or as, young, as a young Christian, I don't understand why would, why would Luke put this in his uh, first church history book? I mean, why? You know, write about the miracles. If I was writing this, I would write about all the testimonies of people getting saved. I'll write about demon possessions and demons being exercised and cast out into, into pigs and other animals. I mean, I'll write about... Like those kinds of things, not about feeding widows. Right? It's a practical thing. It's a minor issue. Why are you spending eight, you know, precious verses in your in the Bible devoted to this issue? It's because um, there is um, a teaching behind this practical issue, right? uh, and it. it, it, it teaches us this because of how the apostles responded to this practical issue. They didn't respond with it pragmatically. They didn't say, you know, okay, Grecian widows and Hebraic widows, we'll have a dance battle, right? You guys go at it, and the winner gets in line first. That's a very, you know, fair way to get food, right? Or they didn't, like, flip a coin. What's the big deal? Just flip a coin or, like, you know, rotate numbers or... You know, it doesn't matter, but they didn't deal with it in a pragmatic, practical level. They saw it as a systemic issue. They saw a larger uh, problem behind it, that if they didn't deal with it at a structural, organizational level, they understood they will repeatedly run into these kinds of problems. If they don't deal with it in in a big picture way, it's going to come up with orphans. It's going to come up with, you know, right, other, other practical areas. Uh, so they need to deal with it uh, with, a, with, with wisdom and with um, God's will uh, in mind. So that is why they didn't just make a decision and react to it. They called a church-wide meeting. Acts chapter 6, verse 2 and 4 is very instructive for us. The apostles before the whole congregation say to them, and they're like proto-elders in a sense, in a functional level. They said to them, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. That word serve in the Greek is diakon, from where we get the noun deacons. It's a verb here. It would not be right for us 
to, to neglect the ministry of word and prayer, to minister on tables, to literally serve or minister on tables. Verse 4, rather we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. That word ministry, the same root word, diakon, from where we get the word deacon, it's a noun here, and it's ministry. Root word is the same. By these two verses, the apostles teach us that in the Christian church, there are two kinds of ministries, two categories of service to Christ. One is word and prayer ministry, and the other is service ministry. They're both ministry. There is direct ministry, and there is indirect ministry. Word and prayer, and there is service. Uh, Turn with me to Romans 12. Put your finger on Acts 6. Turn with me to Romans 12. And we'll see this uh, categorized these categories in uh, Paul's epistles as well, and, and later uh, Peter's epistle as well. In Romans 12, Paul just finished 11 chapters of preaching the gospel to believers. And then 12, he exhorts the church, and he begins on how we are one body, many members, and with our gifts, with our abilities, with our sanctified, consecrated talents, we are to serve the church. Romans 12:3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. The first thing that qualifies us for either ministry is humility. And humility based on the gospel. We must never think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. So what is that standard? We ought to think of ourselves in light of the gospel. That we are the murderers of Jesus. That we are sinners. That we produce no righteousness. That the sum total of all our good works is trash, is sin. That must be our identity if we are going to serve the church. And then verse 4 As in one body, we have many members, and the members not all have the same function. It's a simple analogy. We're one body, but we're all different parts of that body. We have different roles. We have different functions. All for the purpose of exalting the head, which is Christ. Verse 5, So we though many are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another, So he highlights to us the indivisible unity of the Christian church, and yet there is a distinction within the church. It's unity, but it's not uniformity. We are one in essence that we are bought by the blood of Christ, and we are members of one body, but we're different parts of that body. So we have different roles, different functions, different ways God has given us to serve. So we should all like know who we are and serve according to who we are. So serve according to our abilities, our desires, our strengths. Do what God has called us to do. And there's great freedom in that where for me, I don't have to, or not have to, but yeah, I don't have to hold children. If I have to do Pebbles ministry, 
I would die. I mean, I would literally die. But there's, there's people out there where you love children. You love holding kids. And I look at you and it's like I'm in like a, it's a museum or a zoo. Like, what a fascinating person. Like, interesting. You like, you know, holding a child. Right? And then yet you, you say, James, if I had to go up in front of people and talk, I would die. And then for me, talking in front of people is like, it's like holding a baby for you. It's like, it's, it's a big deal, but it's not that big of a deal. Right? So we all have our gifts, our abilities, which you serve, knowing that we are one body. And yet, and then Paul presents to us the two categories of kinds of ministry in the church. He dovetails a ministry from each category. He weaves them one after the other. He brings one from word and prayer, one from service, one from word and prayer, one from service, to show us that the general category we have to see is these two categories. Having, verse 6, gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If it's prophecy, you prophesy according to your faith. And of course, that is word and prayer ministry. If you have the gift of prophetic utterances, of proclaiming uh, and, and predicting uh, the future, you do it. And that's word and prayer ministry. Seven, verse 7, if, if service in our serving, let him serve. So that's the service category. If it's teaching, let him teach. If he exhorts, let him exhort. That's word and prayer. Verse 8, the one who contributes in generosity. You have the means and the desire and the, the, the willingness to give generously. That's the way you serve the church. That's service ministry. One who does, one who leads, let him lead with zeal. And that's word and prayer ministry, right? Leading the church, providing oversight. That's word and prayer ministry. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness, that's service ministry. You see how Paul goes back and forth between two of these categories. And he doesn't highlight one over the other. They're both important. And we all have a role. All, every single one of us has a role in the body of believers. Um... If you turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4, 10 and 11, Peter echoes Paul. And he presents to us, again, these two categories of ministry in the church. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. So the purpose of all ministry is edification of the church. All right? We don't have gifts to serve ourselves. It's to serve the church. As good stewards of God's varied grace, so whoever speaks, let him speak as he's speaking the oracles of God. That's word and prayer. Whoever serves, let him serve with the strength that God provides. That is service ministry. Right? He just lists two. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So, in light of 1 Peter 4, in light of Romans 12, I could have went to 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 as well, but back to Acts chapter 6, in light of this, we learn some simple but important truths for all of us to understand. That both of these ministries, these categories, ministries within these categories are important in the church. Word and prayer, that's, that's a priority 
Because word and prayer births the church. Births gives life to unbelievers. It's the one who inspires and energizes people to works of service. So it's priority in terms of order. But it's not higher in importance. It's just in, in order their priority, but not in importance in essence. Both categories and on ministries within both categories, they are both important. They are both essential. They are both to be done excellently and they are inextricably tied to each other. Word and prayer ministry, service ministry, direct ministry, indirect ministry cannot be separated. They are mutually dependent. They have a symbiotic relationship where they mutually benefit one another. Right? Mutually benefit one another. And if one is harmed, they harm the other. So for example, if there is in a church poor service ministry, right? Weakness in administration, weakness in 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 setting up chairs or or pebbles or giving or serving in other areas, then the word and minute word and prayer suffers. Right? Word and prayer ministry suffers. So just imagine if the audio guys came five minutes before the service and they weren't ready. Right? You walked in and Pebbles Ministry, they decided, oh, we're not going to have Pebbles today. The kids are running around this room right, while I'm preaching. Right? And what if right, chairs aren't set and there's no sign and the internet is not updated and giving us the wrong info? It would directly hinder the ministry of the word and ministry of prayer. And then, just like these widows, the ones who suffer are the ones who are the weakest. People's needs won't be met. So if you're a strong person, if you got your life and you don't need anything, then you'd be like, it's okay. I'm in administration. But the people that are affected the most are the people who are the most vulnerable. So for the strong Christians of Jerusalem, they're not affected, but it's the widows who are affected. And so when service ministry is not done faithfully, right, people's needs are not met, and then what happens? There is drama, disorder, division. What happens instead when uh, service ministry is done excellently? Right, service ministry is done with full devotion then the elders and pastors of the church can devote themselves 100% to prayer. Right? We can devote ourselves to praying for the church. We can devote ourselves to the study, obedience, and exposition of the Word of God. We can devote ourselves to what God has called us to do. And people's needs are met. People aren't being cared for. And there is uh, less drama, less disorder, and less devotion. You see the symbiotic relationship between service ministry and, and word and prayer ministry. The opposite is also true. Right? What happens when elders and pastors neglect the ministry of word and prayer because they are waiting on tables? Right? Figuratively, they are 
immersed in administration and service ministry, what happens? Then people are neglected. Souls are neglected, right? You know, widows are eating. It's social gospel, right? We're doing all these things for the community, right? People are being blessed in physical ways, but Christian souls, they're atrophying. They're malnourished because the Word of God is not being preached faithfully and they're not being prayed for and cared for in their hearts. Truth becomes fuzzy and the direct result is the spiritual dynamic of the church is weakened. And many of you have come to Cornerstone for this very reason. I've heard repeatedly where you have said, I love my old church. They were kind, nice people. They were... We're so busy with ministry. We're doing so many things in the church, outside the church. But they weren't preaching the word. They weren't explaining the Bible to me. They weren't teaching me the gospel. No one was giving me accountability for my life. No one was caring for my soul. So I was, I was not only plateauing in my Christian walk, but I was weakening in my Christian walk. Right? Well, why, 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 why did that happen? It's because the elders and pastors neglected their ministry for practical service. But what happens when elders and pastors, they're free to devote themselves to word and prayer and they constrain themselves to focus on this important ministry, vital ministry, Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, let me just read to you. It equips the believers for works of service. Equips the believers for works of service. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. And he gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. It enables us to train you, equip you, right? edify, build you up so that you can do ministry. So church is not, everybody come so that Pastor James can, you can see him shoot the ball and, and make baskets. Right? Everybody sit at the sidelines and watch the elders and pastors do all the work. And you guys cheer for us. That's not the church. Right? When the elders and pastors, we devote ourselves to word and prayer, we give you the ball. We call your number. And you get to do works of ministry. And... By God's grace, we rejoice that's happening in our church. And what happens when elders and pastors devote themselves to word and prayer, there is um, exponential return. There is this, like, it becomes like synergistic, like 2 plus 2 is 10. It it, it exponentially uh, multiplies. In Acts 4, let's turn there. You're you're in Acts 6, so it's only one page. Acts 4, 33 through 37. Look at verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. So the apostles, instead of immersing themselves in administration, they immersed themselves in preaching the gospel. The result is great grace was upon them all, And the result was, verse 34, there was not a needy person among them because it energized the church. It inspired believers to care for others, minister to those who were in need. 
It inspired believers to give of themselves sacrificially for as many as were owners of lands or houses, sold them. They voluntarily, sacrificially, joyfully, cheerfully gave themselves to the Lord and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed as each has any need. Thus Joseph was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold the field that belonged to him, brought the money and laid at the apostles' feet. So do you see that marriage? Do you see that dynamic? If elders and pastors devote themselves to the word and prayer ministry, it energizes the church. It incredibly unleashes the power of the lady to do works of service, to do works of, of giving, and to do works of word and prayer. It seems to, to me that we haven't rightly viewed these two categories in the life of our church. I think this is an opportunity for us, and in light of Pastor Dan's sharing, to see how important a service ministry is for the gospel of Christ. So right. I, when you were saved, if you were saved at Cornerstone, somebody woke up early and set up the church. Somebody printed the bulletins. Some people labored to organize this worship service. People practiced the songs and brought their instruments. Right? They, prov- they brought snacks so there will be fellowship afterwards. Somebody paid the bills so that we'll be allowed in on this Sunday. Right? I mean, all these things happen behind the scenes. And all that, all those ministers and ministries are, are directly tied to the gospel ministry. It's not, oh, James preached. And that's how they were saved. Or Bob or Dan or Marcus or Joe, they did the work. No, that's, that's just what we see. But in, the, in God's eyes, the scriptures, we see both are important. Like your care group ministry. It's not just your care group leader providing the ministry. Dozens of things go behind the scenes to make that happen. Right. So that's what the apostles laid down for us. They laid down for us the importance of this service ministry that they're equally as important as word and prayer. And if there's failure on that part, weakness on that part of service ministry, word and prayer ministry is directly affected. I chose to share this sermon with you this morning because in light of LTF, oh, we began last year, I would, I would say, this is the heart of the elders, that um, our admin team is... Uh, by far, I believe, one of the greatest admin teams ever in all the other churches. We have a great admin team. They're functioning as deacons of our church. And I appreciate them. They're they're meeting constantly, preparing constantly for for our our church. They're so great, we don't know who who they are. We don't know they exist. Most of you, you're like, we have an admin team? Who is an admin team? You know they're good when... They're under the radar. And they're serving behind the scenes. So I'm not undermining them. I'm not subverting them or kind of taking away from them at all. Our setup ministry, these guys wake up early, stay late. While we're eating, they're putting their 
putting our music equipment away, the audiovisual ministry, our pebbles workers, all these ministries are important, very important. But I would say the most important service ministry, indirect ministry that we are involved in as a church right now is LTF. LTF is the most important service ministry that each one of us has an opportunity to be a part of, responding to the Word of God that was preached to us, responding to the Gospel that is proclaimed to us. We are seeking a building, a central location. And we believe if we had a building with 24-hour access, seven days a week, it would help every single ministry in our church. It would not just be certain groups that benefit. It would be the whole church. Our worship service would benefit. Our praise team would benefit. The preaching would benefit. Our set-up ministry, they could sleep in an extra 30 minutes in the morning, and they could eat with us in the afternoon. Right? Our pebbles ministry would directly benefit. Our, our workers and the children, our children's ministry would benefit. Our FOF class would benefit. I mean, our singles ministry, our, our, our pillars ministry, all our outreaches to our community, Right? Our, our missions to overseas, our admin team would benefit. Every single ministry of our church, whether it's service ministry or word and prayer ministry, would directly be helped by a central building, a central location. Our welcoming ministry would be helped. That is why we believe. Right? We'd rather take a step back and focus on this because short-term loss but there will be long-term gain if God would grant us a building of our own because it would so greatly help our church. Now, why do we want that? Go down to verse 7. The apostles dealt with the service ministry and word and prayer ministry at a systemic level. They didn't respond to it pragmatically. They respond with it biblically according to God's will and the result is the word of God continue to increase. The Word of God multiplied in people's lives. It went forth. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. So, number of Christians, there was an explosion of conversions. And even a great many of the priests became obedient to the death, even the Levites were converted and saved and became Christians. Right. So we see um, this formula. Right. You do word service ministry excellently, and you do word and prayer ministry excellently. So one plus one, these two, becomes gospel advances. People are saved. The cross is lifted up. The word of God goes forth in power, and there is multiplication of souls being saved into God's kingdom. And we believe this, not just for Acts 6, but for our church. And we see evidence of this in our own church, where 10 years ago, you know, literally a ragtag group of collegians gathered together, and they committed themselves to service ministry, and they committed themselves to word and prayer ministry. 
40, 50 some odd people gather together and they humbly served, they, they labored, they ministered, they gave generously, believing that if we do this, God's word will advance and people will be saved. Now, we in our limited faith expected 10 people in 10 years to get saved. Literally, when we hit 50, I thought, wow, this is a mega church. We're good. You know, I can't handle anymore. I, I, I remember thinking that. But we had no idea God would add to our church so many of you. So you are reaping the, the blessings, the benefits of this group early on who are faithful to word and prayer and the service ministry. And so... I ask you to see beyond like today or tomorrow or this week or this month to look ahead 5, 10, 20, 30 years. People that you don't know, you don't know their names. right? We didn't know Vanna, we didn't know John, we didn't know Bobby, we know so many of you, but you're here, we know you now. Right? But there are people like that in the future. How can we reach out to them? How will God use us to... to Bring the gospel to them. And it's the combination of both. It's not one or the other. It's both. There must be word and prayer. But there also must be service ministry. And we're faithful to both. The result will be great grace. Great conversions. Multiplication of people being saved. And so, we'll repeat this next week and week after as well, but call you a church-wide effort to consider your role in the most important service ministry we are all a part of. Not for our sake, but for the sake of the gospel that has saved us, has enriched our lives, has blessed us so much, and the gospel is not just for us. It's for your friends, your co-workers, your family, your neighbors, complete strangers, the whole world. May God uh, cause us to think through and consider what our role would be in advancing the gospel for His glory. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank You and bless Your name. We marvel at the wisdom of the Scriptures. You are so wise. Uh, you are so uh, your sovereignty, your majesty, your power and might. You have employed all of all of those to uh, make your church beautiful, to uh, build up your body of believers, so that we might rightly reflect your your power, holiness, and glory to this world, so that people might be saved, and that your people might worship you as you are worthy. Lord, uh, we pray that these truths would help us to see the purpose of our lives. The purpose of our lives is for the gospel. Whatever we do is for the glory. We're to do it for the glory of God. So help us to see um, all that we have and all that we do and own and work for. It's uh, empty without the gospel of Christ. We need to motivated by the gospel, not out of guilt or duty or 
shame or any kind of obligation, but voluntarily, individually, respond by faith to what you have calling us to do. Oh Lord, may we enjoy respond to you uh, by faith. Thank you, and in your name we pray. Amen.